Chapter Two of A Yellow Journalist by Miriam Michelson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Leanne Howlett. Honors are easy. Between Miss Massey and Mr. Thompson. And where were you at the time the arrest was made? I demanded. He sat opposite me in the little hotel parlor. Blewett, local correspondent, his clothes too tight for him, his skull too thick, his vanity too dense for disgust to penetrate. "'Oh, I was at a dance, you know,' he said in an aggrieved tone. "'It was after eleven. Upon my soul, I believe it was almost twelve. What the deuce the sheriff wanted to do the thing in the middle of the night for, I can't see, unless the Times record bought him. Blamed unfriendly, I call it. I'll roast him good and brown for it some. The office, I interrupted, is not altogether charmed. Well, they can't blame me. I looked at him, the picture of fat, self-satisfied dullness. Why, I understand that fellow Thompson of the Times record, he went on, came up from the city and worked the thing up on the sly. Nice thing for a gentleman to do. They tell me when he was ready and had his story all written, including a faked interview with the prisoner, he waited purposely till eleven o'clock before turning his proofs over to the sheriff and witnessing the arrest. Then he filed his copy at the telegraph office and went off to bed. When I got wind of it at midnight... Oh, I groaned. Yes, wasn't it beastly of him? I did try to send a message, but the operator was busy with his stuff, the telephone wires were down, and— And why in the name of peace didn't you ride to Grafton, route out the operator there, and send us just a word, just a line, to save our face? We could have padded it out. We'd have done anything. Oh, if you could have seen McCabe's face when he got down at noon and saw that T.R. scoop. Blewett stared at me, blinking solemnly. Why, do you know, he said slowly, I never once thought of that. It was so late and such a disagreeable night, too, to go to the Grafton. Besides, I had taken a young lady to the party, and had to see her home, you know. It was a bitter cold night. Don't you find it very cold up here, Miss Massey? I—I I find, I stammered furiously. But San Isidro's a nice little place, he went on in his best society manner. We have lovely parties here. I choked. Parties and a young lady and the weather and the time of night, when the news was scooped on its very own story, the Dimling murder case we had ourselves uncovered. "'Look here, Mr. Blewett,' I said explosively. "'Everybody connected with the news is in mourning. We're—we're we're just writhing in defeat, and they've rushed me up here to do anything in the world that'll do good. Now, as long as I'm here, we'll do business, you and I, on this basis. No parties, no young ladies, no night, no day, no nothing till we get even with the time's record. I can't sleep, you mustn't sleep, till we do them up. Understand? Of course, he said stiffly. I am at your service. Evidently, he didn't think I came up to the San Isidro standard of young ladyhood. Thank you. I said dryly, if we succeed in hauling the news out of this hole, you may keep your job. He flushed at that, and his ears were still red when he took his leave. I suppose it was nasty of me, but I couldn't bear his jellyfish complacency. At the station I had seen Ted Thompson shining in the morning after glow of victory, and to fancy his cool, audacious quickness matched against my lumbering, blundering aide-de-camp made me lose my temper. I could hear Ted's voice still. "'Oh, how are you this fine morning, Miss Massey?' he had called out the minute he saw me get off the train. "'Miserable! Furious!' I cried. "'If I were a man, I could find words to express.' "'You want to swear? Quite natural. Can I do anything in that line for you?' "'If you please,' I said gravely. He halted. We were walking together up the one village street, and all San Isidro was gaping at us and pointing us out, 
and calmly extending a hand as though to command silence and invoke the wrath of the inky gods, he said in affected falsetto of dainty disgust, Darn! The townspeople stared. I giggled in spite of my rage. I feel better, thank you, I told him, and we resumed our walk to the relief of the populace. And I congratulate you, there. Oh, what a scoop, what a bully scoop! Wasn't it? His gleeful admiration of his work was almost as impersonal as my own. Wasn't it just too full and sweet and rich for anything? The only drawback was that fathead Blewett. He's just too easy. I knew you'd be coming up. I've learned to look for you, you know, which makes work double the fun. Tell me, are the newspeople very sore? Sore? I exclaimed. Sore? Words failed me. He laughed delightedly. Is there anything more I can do for you in the way of elegant and perfectly ladylike profanity? He asked. Thank you, no. I couldn't find it in my conscience to ask you to put forth so tremendous an effort twice. He chuckled. Just the same, I'm awfully glad they sent you up. The place is a whole, deadly. But if you'll lunch with me and... No, sir. Phew! The news must be sore and McCabe savage. It is, Mr. Thompson. They are. I'm not lunching. I'm not living. Wait till I get even. Don't let it take too long, please, he laughed. We were at the hotel door. There's but one at San Isidro. The office has just sent me an extra hundred as a token of esteem, and I want you to help me to blow it in. Blood money. I couldn't touch it. I declared, and ran upstairs. I hate a murder case. One's sympathies are all with the poor devil against whom all the resources of civilization are trained, till he falls down before the fearful odds and crumbles into nothingness, and a back-page paragraph. But Dimling stood staunchly as only innocence or extraordinary guilt can. His mother, his father, his sister, and his little brother were dead, and the house in which the murders had been committed was a heap of charred posts and ashes. We knew that much. Was Dimling the wretch who had done it all? Half the people in San Isidro believed he was. In Grafton, his own town, where the murders had been committed, not a soul believed in his innocence. And in addition, he was accused of being the masked robber who had held up the stage a month before. As for me, how could I tell? when Hornick, his attorney, was holding the fellow incommunicado, and I couldn't bribe or bully or coax him to give me an interview. We condoled with each other, Thompson and I, and that day we even united forces to try to break down Hornick's resolution, but it was all for nothing. But the rest of my day's work wasn't. Blewett came rushing up to me that afternoon at the station. We were all waiting for the train, already an hour late, to take us to Grafton, the sheriff was to take his prisoner back there. "'Beg pardon, Miss Massey,' Blewett said mysteriously. "'May I see you a moment?' I nodded to Thompson and McGowan of the press and joined him. "'I've got a corking tip. The Grafton people are going to take Dimling from the sheriff and lynch him. There, what do you say to that?' "'Do you think they really will, Mr. Blewett?' "'Do I think?' Why, Pinoyer, the sheriff's deputy, who came down on the local to go up with them, says Grafton's all aflame with indignant and outraged public spirit. The populace is aroused. A mighty sentiment. What I mean, I interrupted, I can't bear people to talk their stuff to me. What I mean is, from your experience of the miners at Grafton, do you really think they'll carry out their threat, or are they only bluffing? Why, Dimling is shivering in his cell, and— So I have said in my story, Mr. Blewett, part of which is already on the wires. Oh, you knew about it? At ten this morning. A long-distance talk with Grafton. That's how. He was crestfallen. Do you want to do me a favor, Mr. Blewett? I asked. Do I? Well, when the train arrives at Grafton, get us a good story of the way the crowd up there receives it, 
They fancy the sheriff and Dimling will be on board. And? And they won't. Look there. I nodded down the street. Coming toward us was a two-seated rig, with the deputy sheriff, Penoyer, in front, driving. On the seat behind him was the sheriff and a thin-lipped, rat-eyed young man whose wrists were handcuffed. Blewett jumped. An idea had occurred to him. "'There is room for one more on the front seat,' he whispered. "'By Jingo!' "'Hadn't you better ask for that seat, Mr. Blewett?' I suggested softly. He hesitated. "'There's no danger of the mobs mistaking you for Dimling. He's lived in Grafton all his life, and everybody knows him,' I urged. "'Think what a story you'll get if they do try to take him from the sheriff. It would make up to the office for that awful beat of Thompson's. If you really want—' "'No, no, it would be of no use to ask for it,' Blewett said hurriedly. "'Thompson's got it fixed, I'll bet. Look there, he's talking to them now.' The sheriff's team had pulled up, and while Ted Thompson pleaded and the sheriff sat shaking his handsome white head, Benoyer was looking over the crowd. "'Yes, Thompson's got that place, the beggar,' Blewett repeated. "'No, Mr. Blewett, Thompson hasn't,' I said. A common instinct had driven the crowd close to the carriage to gaze upon the prisoner. We were so near now that I could hear the exclamation of disappointment Ted gave when I spoke again to the local man. "'Look here, Mr. Blewett. If you want to go up with the sheriff, I can get you that seat,' I said quickly. "'It's mine. Yes or no, now? Quick!' "'Oh, there you are, Miss Massey,' called the sheriff, leaning out. "'Jump in now, if you're game.' I looked at Blewett. He colored and drew back. I jumped into the wagon. I wouldn't touch the hand he held out to help me. A murmur of amazement that broke into a laugh and swelled into a cheer came from the crowd. Ooh, I never felt so yellow in my life. The red flamed in my cheeks. I set my teeth and looked straight ahead. But I saw Ted Thompson rushing madly up the street toward the village stable before Penoyer's whip flicked out. The crowd cleared and we were off. Are, are there many good horses in San Isidro? I asked Penoyer anxiously. The deputy laughed aloud, a roar of appreciation. He was a young giant, beardless and bronzed, the muscles of whose great shoulders played beautifully beneath his shirt. He wore neither coat nor waistcoat. "'There can't be many decent horses in a town like that,' I pleaded. "'Take comfort, Miss Massey,' the sheriff leaned forward. "'You've got the whole works to yourself, just as he had the other night.' Thompson can't get a thing on four legs that'll get him to Grafton sooner than the train. It's behind time, but he'll have to wait and take it. We go by a shortcut, and so... Oh, thank you. I turned and held out a hand. My, how I loved him for a minute. That big, bearded, keen-eyed old California sheriff, so susceptible to woman's wiles, so appreciative of a situation, so full of relish for a joke and so courteous in his dear old pioneer forty-nine way. "'Miss Massey,' he said then with distinguished formality, "'this is Thad Dimling.' We bowed gravely, the murderer and I. He shot a swift, suspicious glance at me from out his lowering, sharp eyes, and shut his lips tight. But I was innocence and simplicity personified. I attempt to interview him now that his lawyer wasn't there to protect him and chance had thrown him to me? Oh, no, not Rhoda Massey. The drive to Grafton takes nearly two hours. I could wait. Oh, these girl reporters have got grit all right, said the sheriff to the world at large, while Penoyer the Silent chuckled enjoyingly. I promised her she should ride up with us when she found out we wasn't going up on the train. By gum, she deserved it. They wasn't a reporter in town that knew it. I was in hopes you'd tell Blewett, miss. And I was in hopes you wouldn't, I returned. He laughed delightedly. Cute, eh? He appealed to Penoyer's back, and the giant deputy's shoulders shook. Well, if you had trusted that fellow, he went on, the whole town'd have known it. And then Thompson had time to checkmate ye. He come after me, though at noon. 
Cute, I tell you, Ted Thompson. And he swore and he coaxed. He offered to pay the price of the rig for a seat. I told him he could have it for nothing. You did? I interrupted. If the other fellow that was going with us didn't show up, he showed up all right, the other fellow. But I don't know. If they's trouble up there. Miss Massey. A new voice it was. Dimling's voice. Husky from long silence. Timid but affecting bravado. Do you believe there's any truth in these stories about, about a lynching? Will you tell me just what you know about it? Would I? Oh, to have your fish ask you to please be so good as to bait a hook for him. The silly fish, he didn't know that the man who asks an interviewer a question is lost. Poor, poor Ted Thompson. By the time the dome of Grafton City Hall was in sight, I knew all Dimling had to tell me though he remembered his attorney's injunction faithfully, and I was never so impolite as to mention such an ugly thing as murder. I knew his hobby, his vanities, his tastes, his prejudices. I knew his weak, hard face by heart, his mannerisms, his peculiarities of speech. I had his opinion of the world that had accused him. I had an order for his signed photograph. You'll scoop the news, Ted Thompson, will you? but we all got very still as we neared the town. The grinning young giant next to me straightened his buffalo-like shoulders and slid a Winchester along his knees. I heard the sheriff trying his pistol behind me, and I saw the gray pallor that overspread the prisoner's face. My own heart began to beat with the horse's hoofs as we turned up the road and into a side street, and I didn't spend so much time pitying Ted Thompson. When the men came up, and where they came from, I don't know to this day. There was a score of them on horseback, and they rode fiercely at us, only to check their horses suddenly and dash frantically down a cross street. I turned questioningly to the sheriff. I couldn't speak. My tongue was stiff and dry. Dimling had slipped into the bottom of the wagon. Only his eyes seemed alive. "'They must have seen you, miss,' said the sheriff and thought they'd made a mistake. They'll be back, of course, but that's so much time lost, and we'll see, that's all. Another turn, and we were galloping up the main street. We galloped, and Panoyer lashed the horses on, and yet every moment the crowd ahead was denser. We got slower and slower. Then a bunch of men were hanging at the horses' heads. Then the wagon stopped. And it seemed to me my heart stopped beating, too. Get down, Wilson, or shove him out to us. We're going to have him. It was one voice, but it sounded like a chorus in the sudden stillness. That you, High Huffacre? The old sheriff put his white head out the side. Dimling was under the seat by this time. Better be about your business and let me mind mine, or hell will pop some, I warn you. His answer seemed to let loose a torrent of ejaculations, of curses, shrieks, and threats. They were clamoring up on the wheels now in the back. Those that started to get up where I sat looked at me as though they did not believe their senses and fell back again. And all the time the steady young giant at my side sat without a word, the reins in one hand, his gun in the other. I couldn't see what was going on behind, but I heard a scream from Dimling, and the click of the sheriff's gun before it rang out. And then, just in the nick of time, came the answering crack of the guards' pistols and the clap of their horses' hoofs as they galloped down toward us from the jail. I know now that they fired in the air, but none of us knew it then. At any rate, the mob, caught between two fires, wavered for a second, and in that second Panoyer had dropped his gun, shoved the reins into my hand, and leaning far out, was lashing the horses right and left. I must have heard the pop-pop of the sheriff's gun and felt something swift fly across my cheek that made Pinoyer swear, but I really knew nothing except the tug at my arms and the swishing cry of Pinoyer's whip that made me wince every time he brought it down, till the sheriff leaned over me and almost pulled the reins from my stiff hands that even then refused to let go. I hadn't spoken a word when we got to the courthouse door. I couldn't. I was dumb with terror, and shivering so that the matron almost carried me into the jail. Panoyer was still swearing over the wound in his shoulder. Dimling was lifted, swooning from where he had fallen. 
I saw the mark of the sheriff's boot heel on his face, and the sight so nauseated me that I broke into shivering cries. We might. I scribbled in court the next morning on a page of copy paper that I had passed on to Ted Thompson. Have that luncheon together today. Hornick, the prisoner's attorney, and the district attorney were fighting over the introduction as evidence of Dimling's half-burned, blood-stained coat. The two lawyers were intimate village enemies, and their testy wrangling gave me my only leisure second since the examination began. Thompson had just come in and taken his seat at the other end of the reporter's table. I'll bet he had been leading a strenuous life since he got to Grafton, trying to cover all the story I'd had at first hand. He wasn't his usual debonair self by any means. The bit of manila paper went through the hands of Frankie McGowan of the press, Bliss of the mail, and Cohen, the Times record artist, before reaching him. He got it finally, read it, grinned over at me, and soon there was a white sheet of the T.R. copy paper traveling back to me. It was a bold, bad beat, Thompson had written. No lady would have done it, even if blew it as a coward. It was purely masculine business. You deserve to get shot. How good it is that young women seldom get what they deserve. Lunch at one, if these two old cocks ever get through fighting. I nodded across at him in answer, and he turned and gave a message to Penoyer. The big young deputy received the note as though it was a sacred thing, and solemnly tiptoed away with it, though he had to worm his way out through half of Grafton crowded into the little courtroom. On the part of that king, the press, his manner proclaimed, and the people, awed and curious, made way. They did love us so, these Graftonites, sobered now, with the mobbing miners sent back to the mountains. To them we reporters were mountebacks practicing our stunts and getting ready for the circus before their very eyes. As for me, a live newspaper woman, they felt for me all that delightful compound of curiosity and patronizing interest that they annually bestowed on the bearded lady or the two-headed calf. When I did a human thing, such as to eat my breakfast, with one accord, the people in the hotel dining-room took an hour off just to watch me. And when I showed myself not only human, but feminine, too, as when it got warm and I put on a fresh shirt-waist and stuck a rose in my belt, they chuckled and commented upon me with a freedom that charmed the newspaper men who sat with me at the reporter's table. My eyes, which had followed the progress of Penoyer through the open window and over to the hotel, traveled back slowly. The day was warm, and the absurd peacocking of the two lawyers was delaying things abominably. I found myself reckoning up the time I should have left to write my story if the afternoon session should move no faster than this, and I looked irritably over toward Ted Thompson, sure that the same thing would occur to him. But Ted was reading a telegram that had just been brought him, and as I watched he rose quickly and hurried out of the courtroom. "'Something's up, Rhoda.' I said to myself, and instantly the whole preliminary examination palled upon me. I sat there, looking at the two battling attorneys. I even took a note or two when they gave utterance to something particularly funny and wrathful that I might use to guide them with later. But my heart was in the highlands, following after that slippery Ted Thompson. What in the world was the tip he'd got? "'What's this dull town to me?' hummed little McGowan of the press, under his breath. There's mighty little Frank McGowan isn't on to. Exactly. I turned to him frankly. What's he got, Frankie? Do you know? Not I. It's something new. He's been crazy, though, since he saw your story this morning. Of course he's bound to get even. Of course, I agreed faintly, but... Miss... Miss Massey said a voice at my elbow. It was Penoyer's voice, and he spoke in a hoarse whisper that turned every head toward me. I took the envelope he held out. "'Ted's writing,' commented McGowan cheekily. "'It was.' "'So sorry. No lunch for me today. Called away. Ask McGowan to help you eat the spread I ordered at the hotel. Tomorrow noon I'm sure to be happy to fill that engagement. T.T.' I passed it over to McGowan. 
"'It's a nice teddy it is,' he chuckled. "'The lad loves his little stomach.' "'It's a threat, that's what it is,' I said gloomily, tearing the note across. "'If he'll be so plaguy happy to fill that engagement tomorrow, "'it means that I'll have no appetite for it and there'll be no lunch. "'Oh, dear, I wish I knew what he is up to. "'If only these lawyers would get down to business. "'He might at least miss the prosecution's star witness,' I added vindictively. "'No such luck.' McGowan went on laboriously decorating his copy-paper with funny sketches of rural Grafton. He has the crudest talent for caricature, but a genius for discovering physical weaknesses. They've got the center of the stage now, for the only time of their lives, those two old billy-goats, with all the big dailies from the city eager to report every word, and they'll butt and bully and bulldoze till we'll be tempted to ask Dimling to lend us Exhibit A, that bloody gun over yonder, and turn it on em for the good of the cause, if they'd only quit sidestepping and mix things up a bit. But they didn't, for all that day and late into the evening the pompous little attorney for the defense and that lean old bore, the district attorney, blocked and barricaded and objected and denied, and were called to order and threatened with contempt of court. When I sent off my stuff that night, I could have stamped on it I hated it so. It wasn't worth the telegraph tolls the news would pay on it. But I hated it worse the next morning. There was the Times record. I'd left orders to have it sent me the minute their special train got in, with a full first-page interview and sketches and a signed statement from Ella Harris, Dimling's sweetheart, who had disappeared and been in hiding ever since the crime, though both prosecution and defense had been seeking her. No wonder Ted Thompson had skinned out of that dull courtroom. Who wouldn't for a beautiful thing like that? I got it that day. The lawyers and the sheriff and the judge and all the rest of them were on to the battle between the Times record and the news, and their heavy witticisms over Thompson's story drove me nearly frantic. The T.R. had sent Bunnell up to do the Grafton end of it. Thompson didn't appear in court that day or the next. But another story of his appeared in the Times record all right, letters with facsimiles from Dimling to his sweetheart, photos of the pair at a picnic and at the cliff house, and a column statement signed by the girl and bearing Ted Thompson's unmistakable hallmark in every line. Oh, misery! I sent Blewett out to locate the girl. I told him not to dare come back without seeing her. He sent me a tearful wire from San Ysidro, whither he had traced her, saying that Thompson evidently intended to continue on the move with the girl in tow, to keep driving up and down the coast from now till doomsday with her, to spend every cent of his expense money on her, to keep her entertained and happy, and incommunicado. And the following day, too, Miss Ella Harris held forth to the Times Records readers, psychologically dissecting her lover's character in Thompson's best style. The court had taken a recess for a few days, the case in Grafton was dead temporarily anyway. The other newspaper people took trips up to the mines and down the valley. I went to bed sick, sick of seeing the Times record come out daily with its infernal Ella Harris stories. But I read them just the same, every word of them. It had a fascination for me, that stuff. Thompson had taken to faking largely now, for every idea in the girl's stupid little head must have given out days ago. The first thing in the morning I read it, though, and again just before I went to sleep, and even at night when I waked and couldn't get to sleep for fuming over the thing, some phrase Ted had put in the girl's mouth stuck in my memory. But I could see what Thompson was and what was real. I hadn't studied that clear, good style of his for nothing. So I pored over it all till I got a complete understanding of Dimling's character anyway, till I knew the fellow— not as he had tried to make me see him when I talked with him, but as he was, with the one tenderness that made him kin to humanity, till, till the whole scheme came to me, and when court convened the next Monday I was ready to try it. The courthouse at Grafton is a noble structure, to the Graftonites. To us it was chiefly remarkable for the conveniences it afforded for newspaper work, for under its one roof it housed everybody and everything connected with the case. The coroner had held his inquest here. The preliminary examination was held here. 
and Dimling's temporary cell was just across the corridor from the sheriff's office, so that through the sheriff's open door one could see the prisoner sitting behind the bars, affecting not to hear what we said of him and his case, while we chatted with the fine old sheriff about this and other experiences of his full long life, and waited for the judge to stroll over from his cottage across the way. "'He's guilty, all right, Dimling,' the sheriff would quietly say each time a new clue was uncovered. "'He did em both, the robbery and the murders.' "'But, Sheriff,' I interrupted that Monday afternoon, speaking very clearly and raising my voice, "'there is always a possibility.' "'Not the least in the world, my dear young lady. He's good as hanged now.' "'Don't you believe him, Miss Massey?' shouted Dimling's attorney. The boy is innocent, and— "'Then why do you keep him shut up for?' demanded Frank McGowan. "'If he was innocent, he'd want to explain how that pistol with which the little boy was clubbed to death after the others had been shot came to be hidden in the shed. He'd want to tell why he pitched his old coat into the flames, and how it came to be covered with bloodstains, how he could be in the lane behind the house as you admit he was and know nothing of the murder. And incidentally— how the express company's money happened to be hidden with that pistol. It's a trifle, but— He does, he does want to speak, interrupted Hornick hurriedly. Sometimes I'm afraid he will, in spite of all my advice to the contrary. The boy has got to be protected against himself. Hmph, sneered McGowan. Well, for my part, I had stepped to the door and was looking up the corridor now but out of the corner of my eye I could see that Dimling had dropped his book at mention of his little brother, and that he was listening eagerly. For my part, I've got a theory myself that he's innocent. "'Since when?' demanded McGowan, amazed. "'Your stuff in the news.' "'But I've changed my mind.' I laughed out hastily. We were on our way to the courtroom now, and we had to pass the boy's cell. "'I believe he didn't do it. Yes, I do.' He's innocent, and I'm sure the scheme I've hit upon is the one he'll choose for his defense. But he's innocent. I'm sure of that. You're talking through your hat, growled McGowan, looking at me as though he thought I'd taken leave of my senses. But I didn't care. At the end of the corridor I turned sharply. There against the long bars sat the prisoner. His book had fallen to the floor, but his eyes were following me. He had heard then. I could do no more. Ted Thompson was sitting in his old place when we came into the courtroom. He was sharpening his pencils and whistling to himself, the image of contented industry. All through playing the village bow, I taunted as I passed him, not daring to let him have first blood. But he was too happy. He could afford to be generous. He only grinned and, leaning across the table, asked, Does that celebrated luncheon come off today? I shook my head. Tomorrow, perhaps. He looked up quickly, but the prisoner was brought in just then, and the examination commenced. I suppose I did pay some attention to the afternoon's work, but I knew I could get the shorthand reporter's transcript, and in my head a ceaseless questioning seesaw went on. Will he? Won't he? And the he was an even more elusive man to count on than Ted. It was Dimling. I caught his eye several times that afternoon, and once I knew he was about to speak to me when his attorney interfered, but when court adjourned, he walked out between his attorney and the sheriff, and I gave up hope. Still, I couldn't go up to the hotel with the others without one more try. I told the boys I'd left some letters in the sheriff's office, and before they could offer to get them, I hurried away. I was going down the corridor when I met the jailer. Dimling wants to see you, miss he whispered knowingly. Hornick's gone to supper or he'd never get the chance, but... Hurry, I breathed. Hurry. I got to the cell before him and had to wait while he unlocked the door. The bars in front reached from floor to ceiling. Dimling waited till the guard had crossed over to the office and was out of hearing, though not out of sight. Then he spoke. You said you had a theory, Miss Massey. Tell it to me. It was a week since our drive up from San Isidro, an afternoon of terror for the poor wretch that had been followed by days of slow torture. 
the crumbling of every hope he might have had and the steady upbuilding of the case against him. No wonder he rushed toward anything that looked like an outlet. I, I'm doing this without Hornick's knowing, he continued. He's a, I ain't got any confidence in him. He wants me to plead insanity, but I ain't guilty. Why should I? Tell me what was that scheme? What did you mean? For a moment I hesitated, shivering. Sheer pity for the wretch held me dumb. I looked at his haggard, unshaven face, his restless, frightened eyes, his powerful young body, its muscles relaxed as he stood slouchingly or shuffled his feet as he walked. It was that, the latent strength in him, that brought the other side of it quickly before me. The old father shot down, the mother in bloody terror of the monster she had given birth to, flying to the telephone and falling there. The sister cut off at the piano, the words of a song on her lips. The little imbecile brother clubbed to death with the butt of the same bloody revolver. "'Mr. Dimling,' I said slowly, "'I think the time's come for confession.' "'Confession?' The weakness fled from his face and wickedness stared brutally at me. "'Is that all you meant?' "'Well, you might as well.' He nodded over his shoulder toward the grated door, which stood ajar, and sat down immediately, his back to me, at the table where the tray with his dinner had been placed. I looked at that back a moment, the great hulking mass of muscles bending over the table as an animal crouches over the food it tears. I wanted to beat him. Not for murder, but for discourtesy, the brute. But I walked quietly to the door, a false exit that made him look up, and asked simply as I was leaving, "'What harm can it do to him now?' "'Him? Who?' "'Why, the man who was really guilty, the dead man you're trying to shield.' He put down his knife. His hand was trembling so that he couldn't hold it. "'Come, come back a minute,' he stammered. "'Now tell me. You mean father?' I was trembling myself then, but I came back and standing next to the table I began under my breath. Listen, at dusk on the evening of July 10th, a man of fifty-five came home, ill-tempered, out of sorts. At his best he was a reserved, surly, cranky fellow, known to be peculiar, domineering, never sociable or friendly with his neighbors, but close, grasping, suspicious. His wife was cooking the dinner. His daughter was at the piano. His, his youngest boy, my voice must have trembled in spite of me, was playing on the floor beside, no, he was out in front, Tim was. I caught the back of his chair to steady myself, but I dared not stop now, nor let him see I had heard. Old Demling, I went on slowly, only half nodded in answer to their greeting. He was not a man who believed in forms, but he passed on out through the kitchen and across the yard into the shed. There he began to throw aside the rubbish and presently pulled out a sack. It was heavy with money, and that money he was just about to pour from the sack into a can he had placed ready, when the door behind him opened and his son Thad appeared. I didn't dare look at the fellow as he sat, his face upturned to me and studying mine his ashen lips moving inaudibly, as though mechanically following the motion of mine. The, the sight of the golden tens and twenties came upon the sun like a revelation, I began again. A month before there had been a stage robbery near the town, and the robber had never been caught nor the money found. Young Dimling knew now where it was and who was the robber. He started forward trying to speak, begging, denouncing, but before he could really speak, the older man sprang at him. "'Yes, yes, he began it!' cried Dimling. His cheeks were blazing now, and his sallow face was lit up with hope and excitement. They, they grappled, but the older man was more powerful, and the boy fled. "'It wasn't that he could do me up, but—' "'But you were afraid to alarm the family,' I interrupted hastily. He mustn't talk yet. You broke from him and ran into the house, and then, fearing he was coming after you, 
you flew outdoors, hoping that in your absence he would calm down, and then later you might reason with him. He nodded. I waited, for a minute that seemed like an hour. Yes. But why would he kill the folks? he asked. He? The mistake you made was in going inside. He thought you had told your mother his secret, and as soon as he had hidden the gold again, he rushed in upon her, in his hand the pistol he had kept concealed with the money. He did not intend to shoot her. In his grudging way, he respected her, this good, simple, hard-working woman. Yep, but they'd had it hot and heavy often enough about me. He wanted merely to frighten her, to compel her silence. My throat was dry, and I was so husky he had to lean back to hear me. But somehow the gun went off. She ran shrieking to the telephone, and there another shot finished her. The latent madness in him leaped to frenzy at sight of the blood he had shed, and of his daughter gazing horrified at him. An uncle of his had died in an asylum. Of course the poor fellow was mad. Well, of course, that would help me, too, about Grandunk Peter. He, he completed the massacre, I went on faintly, and turned the pistol on himself at last, and falling against the lamp, set fire to the place. Bully! He was gazing admiringly at me. You say that fine, just like you saw it. I do, I do see it, and then I see you coming back. You hadn't gone far as you were first to hear the shots, and... But... I waved his objection down. You rushed into the house, from which as yet no flames came. The fearful sight in the kitchen staggered you. You almost lost your senses. But in the midst of that awful scene one thought possessed you. No one must ever know that your father had done it. You seized the bloody pistol and ran, ran blindly away to hide it through. Through Tannery Lane, that old cat Mrs. Jennings saw me. Through Tannery Lane. You saw Mrs. Jennings, too, or at least knew someone had seen you, and suddenly the fearful thought struck you. You might yourself be suspected. Then you crossed back to the shed and thrust the pistol up in the rafters. You hurried downtown. Your coat was bloodstained, of course, from the pistol. You bought another, and rolling the old coat under your arm, you raced back to the house. All aflame now and surrounded by the crowd, and dashing the bundle through a window to clear away for yourself, you leaped in. Great! And now, now you throw up your hands. I have stood it all, you say. The whole town's been against me. I've lost every friend I had. Nobody believes me innocent. I could bear all this for father's sake, hoping the truth need never be known, but that in time I'd get my freedom and then the whole thing would remain a mystery. But every day I keep silent seems to draw the net closer about me. My poor father would forgive me, but this is the truth. I am innocent. He did it. You bet. You print it, will you? Just like I'd said it. Promise me you will. It'll be a great scoop for your paper, but you deserve it. You're so smart and found it out while all those other reporters say I'm guilty. Then... Something in the back of my head threatened, but I couldn't stop now. Then this is your story. This is the truth? That's what it is. He was pacing up and down the cell now, almost gaily, his evil young face alight with the braggart's confidence. It, it makes a hero out of me, don't you think? Why, when I get out of here, people will be tumbling over each other to be nice to me. Why, I guess even theatrical managers and museums... "'Tell me, Mr. Dimling,' I asked suddenly in the matter-of-fact tone of the interview, "'why do you suppose the little boy was killed before his sister?' He stopped still, as though a shot had struck him. "'He wasn't,' he murmured. I held my breath, but he was quite off his guard now. "'Why, of course he was,' I ventured, moving carefully toward the door. "'I tell you, he—' wasn't he repeated brokenly i was right i was right 
the little half-witted brother had been the one tender spot in this brute's life. No, no one wanted to hurt the kid. He was a first-rate little kid, and his being weak in his head didn't keep him from making up to you gentle as a pup. A shiver shot through him at the memory, and I trembled too with nervous nausea. He'd heard the shots. His voice went on complainingly, while he dropped heavily into his chair. But he didn't know what it all meant, even though the place was blazing round him when he come in. Poor kid. He, he laughed at the fire. He was such a kid for fire. It was all you could do to haul him away from it. He kept dancing around, clapping his hands. I tried to drag him out, telling him he'd get burned. But that scared him, and he broke away and ran for the kitchen, crying for his mother. It was in the pantry between that I caught him. It made me mad, his running in there where they all were. I, I'd got to get away. I landed on him then, not hard, but I'd forgot about the gun. It was still in my hand, and it come crashing. His head fell upon the table, his arms outspread. I staggered out into the corridor. My feet were leaden as in a nightmare. And as in a nightmare, something caught my throat and held it tight so that I could not call the guard. It was Dimling's sudden, realizing cry of fury that brought him running to the cell doors where the two grappled. "'It's a lie! It's a lie!' Dimling was yelling while he beat upon the door which the jailer had succeeded in closing. "'Tell that she-devil it's a lie!' But I was out in the sunshine by that time, and the tonic of victory was dancing in my veins. It was nine o'clock when I got through my story, and seizing my hat and jacket, started for the telegraph office. Blewett, who had been haunting the hotel, joined me. "'Thompson's been flying about like mad,' he whispered. He loved to whisper, as we turned up the street. "'Let him fly,' I said superbly. They're up to something, he and McGowan. McGowan in with him? That might be serious, but do they know? No one knows. Even I don't, exactly, he said imploringly. I laughed happily. But the whole town knows you've got something Hornick don't want you to give out, he went on. Oh, it does. But Hornick can't. He can't help. Hurry, let's hurry. Suddenly a cold fear came over me. I couldn't lose this story. I couldn't, but... But just then we reached the office, and I flew in and threw my copy on the operator's desk. Rush it, won't you? I asked. I'll get the rest from Miss Eli, the shorthand reporter, and send it later. Why, why... He had made no move to take it. What's the matter? I demanded. I'm sorry, Miss Massey, he said, ticking away at his instrument, but I can't possibly send it till long after midnight. The wires are loaded now, and the Times record having got in first, its order must be... Ted Thompson, I gasped. He set you to telegraphing the encyclopedia. There's the telephone, long distance, suggested Blewett. We hurried round the corner. "'Give me the news. San Francisco. Quick!' I cried to the telephone girl. "'Line's busy,' she murmured. "'Oh, never mind that. "'Press. Yes, press,' she called sweetly over the line, ignoring me. "'This is Grafton. I've got three thousand words from McGowan for you. More to come,' he says. "'Yes, ready. Well?' "'Damn it!' I sobbed. Well, it shocked the telephone girl's dry voice into silence for a minute anyway, and it shivered Blewett into dumbfounded horror. It shamed me, too, the sound of it aloud. I had thought it hard enough. But one doesn't always say what one thinks, and it didn't help the littlest bit to get my story down to the news. I stood there in haggard hesitation, knowing that precious minutes were flying by. The girl's dry, low voice—she had recovered— was going calmly on. Through the thick of my misery I was conscious of the long-winded, padded stuff McGowan had written to keep me off the line. He could keep that going indefinitely. "'There's only one thing to do, Rhoda,' I said to myself. 
Let these two highwaymen on part of the story anyway. Make a deal, a compromise. I turned to Blewett. Go tell Thompson, I said wearily, that I want... No, no, don't. Wait, let me think. Think. I think I should be standing there yet in just that impotent agony of indecision if that blessed whistle hadn't come, the whistle of a train. For San Isidro? I shrieked at Blewett. He nodded. Fly uptown, I cried, and get Miss Eli, the court stenographer. Bring her down to the depot. I don't care. Bring her with her notes and have that typewriter I used at the hotel there, too. I tell you, you must. He demurred. There wasn't time. Miss Eli wouldn't come and all the rest of it. See here, Mr. Blewett, I said slowly. I had orders to discharge you and install a new correspondent when I came up. You shall hold your place and have double rates hereafter if you bring her to the depot. Oh, please, please, please bring her. He did. I had got the conductor to hold the train for just five minutes and to wire the San Isidro operator to be ready for me. I had to tell him why to make him do it, but he was a treasure, that conductor, with a natural nose for news and a taste for a fight that was just lovely, and when I confided to him what I'd planned and why I had to get to San Isidro, he stood right in like a man. I can't possibly give you the account of today's testimony, Miss Massey, Miss Eli said as she came up, hatless and coatless but notebook in hand. You see, there's all this to transcribe, and I've promised Mr. Thompson he should... Just come inside a moment and give me that one paragraph of Mrs. Jennings' testimony. I coaxed in my most deferential manner, and haughty as being in demand had made this country girl, she yielded. You'll be sure to let me know in time when you start, she said primly to the conductor. Plenty of time, plenty of time, he assured her with a jovial chuckle and a second later we were off. I placated her by promising to wire to the Times record for Thompson all the transcribed stuff she had promised him. I told the conductor sternly, in her presence, what I thought of his carelessness in carrying off so important a personage as Grafton's court stenographer, and he bore it gravely and apologized most beautifully to stiff, tall Miss Eli. Then I flattered and begged and it wasn't long before she was reading her notes to me, peaceable as a lamb, while I clicked it all off on the typewriter. She was quite content, but I, oh, I was mad with delight, and when at San Isidro I'd filed every blessed word with the telegraph operator, I couldn't resist sending one message in the other direction. It read, Ted Thompson, Times Record Correspondent, Grafton. We'll have that lunch in the city. The Dimling case is done brown and honors are easy. Signed, One of the Cooks. End of Chapter 2